0: Alright, well good morning. We are, um, it's always sweet to gather on the Lord's Day, right? It still feels like camp, because it is camp. But there is something actually a little bit different about Sunday. Because this is actually a gathering that's commanded by the Lord. The Lord rose from the dead on the first day of the week. And the church has celebrated that by worshipping Corporately, I mean, we worship every day of the week, but there's a corporate gathering that has been duly required by the Lord for the church uh, ever since. And so, Sunday is actually a very special day. So it's still camp and still feels like camp, but uh, it's actually just quite sweet to think that here we are gathering, and the songs that we just sang, worshiping the Lord, we're worshiping in, in, in obedience to Him even on Sunday, and uh, ministering to one, one to another. Um, so that's always fun to think about. And it was mentioned at the very beginning when we started, you know, your churches are, are worshiping back home. Um, uh, several in Phoenix, one in Tennessee and everywhere, you know, wherever your home church is, it's just sweet to think about um, uh, people of the Lord gathering together to worship Jesus Christ, our God and our Savior, on the day he rose from the dead. And uh, so here we are. And this Lord's Day, we are going to continue, and we're going to actually, Lord willing, finish up Psalm 51. So, grab your Bibles, open up to Psalm 51, and we're going to look at this last stanza. It really goes from verses 14 through 19. Verses 14 through 19. And um, let me just read the stanza, and and then I will pray. Ask the Lord to bless our time in His Word. David concludes this psalm saying this, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise, I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. By your favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offering, and whole burnt offering, then young bulls will be offered on your altar. Let's pray. Father, we're about to look at this last stanza of Psalm 51, a stanza that not only did David write, a stanza that also you wrote. You wrote through the pen of David, as by the power of your Spirit you brought him through a proper response to his sin. And now here we are, hearing your heart, your mind, your word, on what it means to offer acceptable worship. Lord, I pray that as we think about how to respond to our sin rightly, that we would also think about the, the, the ever-present temptation to think that we need to do something to make up for our, our mistake, for our crimes, for the destruction that we have wrought on our own soul, And quite often our sin has radical effects on the people around us. And sometimes we are tempted to imagine that a proper response to our sin means to take it upon ourselves to do something to make up for it. As though we could impress you. As though we could actually offer worship to you by doing something that would really be an attempt to worship ourselves. Lord, I pray that this morning you deliver us from that. I pray that you deliver us from the idea that we could ever do anything, experience anything, um, accomplish anything, suffer anything that would ever atone for our sin. And may we look to you and may the only thing that we bring be brokenness, contrition, a low heart, a broken heart, a heart that grieves about who we are by nature, but a heart that looks longingly and expectantly at what you will produce in us, which is namely acceptable worship. So, Lord, we've already sung, but now I pray that we could even ask the question, not whether we've sung or not, I'm sure we all did, but I pray now we could ask the question, have we worshiped? Have we offered you a sacrifice that's the only sacrifice you would accept. And so as we look at this psalm, Lord, I just pray that you give every student clarity about what acceptable worship really looks like so that they could rejoice at the opportunity to to worship you in the way that you deserve. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, guys, last night was quite fun. I'm very uh, honored that you guys designed a Jeopardy! game in my honor, and I just had fun uh, going through some of those categories with you. That was just uh, just a blast. And uh, I think perhaps because of uh, the the, the category English Bible, my mind went back to a story in history that I just want to share with you. And it's actually, you know, there was several questions about William Tyndale, and some of you know about William Tyndale, Uh, not to be confused with Winston Churchill, (laughs) <laughs> which I appreciated the comment. Well, I don't know if everybody heard this, but Mike, I was dying. Mike just under his breath says, no, he died at the stake much later than 1536. <laughs> I was dying. It was hilarious. <laughs> so I'm thinking about William Tyndale. He's on my mind. And let me tell you about a story of a personal friend of William Tyndale's. His name was John Frith. Most of you have probably not heard the name John Frith. Uh, I like to think that the American nation celebrates John Frith's martyrdom because he was killed on July 4th. So every July 4th, I kind of think, yeah, I like my independence. I, I'm patriotic. I have uh, um, many, many family members who have fought for our military. I'm, I'm very, I love America. But I also think, I love John Frith. <laughs> and I like to think, maybe we, you know, it's very appropriate that we send up fireworks in honor of a noble man like John Frith. Of course we don't. But that's how I think about it. Let me tell you the story of John Frith. John Frith was a friend of uh, William Tyndale. He was a young, young man, younger than Tyndale even, um, and he, he ended up dying in his 30s. He was one of the leading scholars in England in the, in the 1520s. And he was uh, such a brilliant scholar. He studied the uh, Bible in its original languages, and he had the ability to read the Bible so clearly that he had more clarity than the, than the recognized church. And so as he read the Bible he began realizing that what was articulated as the true message of Jesus Christ from the church was not the true message of the Bible that was actually recorded in the Bible itself. He began standing up against the church. He began preaching what the church did not teach. Namely, two issues were the big deal for John Frith. He was regarded as a criminal from a church state. That means because he was opposed to the state church, he was now a criminal to the nation. So... You know, if you, get, if you get kicked out of a church for d- disbelieving the, the, the truths, you just, you're not part of the church. But if, in his case, he's in a state church, well then, now you're a criminal against the state, against the nation. So he's going to be arrested and tried as a criminal for two things. You know what he refused to believe? Number one, he refused to believe that when a Roman Catholic priest gave the people the bread, that he was offering a sacrifice. That's why they're called priests. I'm not a priest, I'm a pastor. I'm not a priest because I don't offer sacrifice. Sacrifice was offered once for all. Jesus died on the cross once for all. A priest is offering a sacrifice and through the mystical hocest corpum meum pronounces the magical incantation. The Latin is, this is my body. He supposedly turns a piece of bread into the body of Jesus Christ. And then he offers it to the people. And that is a sacrifice that is supposed to cover their sins that they have sinned and the guilt that they have incurred since the last time they took a Mass, a Eucharist, a Communion, the Roman Catholic Lord's Supper. And he refused to believe that. He refused to believe that the Lord's Supper was an actual partaking of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. Second thing, he refused to believe purgatory. I don't know if you've ever heard of the term purgatory. Um, Catholic dogma teaches, they've taught this for for centuries, ever since Innocent III, which was 1200s. They believed um, purgatory is a place that if you die, I mean, <clears throat> let's just face it. I mean, we all, we sin all the time. And so, I mean, if you're trying to take the mass and you're trying to just have enough communion, but I mean, let's, just, let's just be honest. What if you took the mass one morning and then you, on your drive home, sinned against another driver. He cuts you off and you, you sin against him in some way. And then you die in a car accident. <gasps> you, you have sinned. It hasn't been taken care of since you're, Last Mass. Well, now what? Ah, enter Purgatory. Well, in that case, you just go to a place called Purgatory. Um, where is it? Well, I can assure you it's not in the Bible. <laughs> where is it? We don't know. It's just created. But what is it? It's, what, it's what's created when a conscience knows it's guilty and knows that if it's about to stand before God, there's sin that has to be atoned for and it's not atoned for. So let's just have a purgatory where I can go and suffer and then I can suffer there uh, as long as it needs to be so that my sin can be taken care of. It's a doctrine of self-atonement. And so if my sins are this big that haven't been atoned for since my last Mass, I can go to purgatory for this long and then get sprung into heaven. And of course, think about that doctrine. I mean, besides the fact that it's not in the Bible, think about it. You get into heaven and you're like, "Ah, I finally made it. I finally purchased my own salvation. It's just one of the most grotesque forms of self-worship I can possibly imagine. Back to John Frith. John Frith, a scholar in the 1520s, he's writing against these doctrines. He has an entire book against purgatory. The Roman Catholic Church, which is, you know, the, the, the state church, uh, Anglicanism wasn't even a reality when John Frith lived. That was several years, that was a few years after he died that Anglican, Anglicanism became a reality. So the, the, the entire nation is just Roman Catholic. Roman Catholic authorities, which are the state authorities, so they go and arrest John Frith. They start walking him away and, they, and they, um, they're, they're walking him to, uh, they have to transfer him from one city where they were holding him in prison to another city where they were going to try him where some of the uh, religious officials were at and some, some Protestants had some pretty in- interesting connections and they're actually walking John Frith to the town where he's going to be tried and they get out in the middle of the woods and they say, hey, it's time for you to go the other way <laughs> and he says, excuse me? We're Protestant. We're with you. We believe what you believe. Just get lost. (laughs) He had the opportunity to walk away. He could have fled. He could have gone to visit his friend uh, Tyndale in in Belgium. He could have have done a thousand things. And he just said, You know, my friends, I don't think you understand. I'm on trial for the truth. And I'm going to defend the truth. I'm glad you're with me doctrinally, but I'm with you. We're going to go and defend the truth. He had the opportunity to escape with his life, and he didn't take it. He went and got tried by a false court, defending the truth. He was burned alive on July 4th, 1533. Why did I tell you the story of John Frith? He died defending a doctrine that attacks the very stanza of Psalm 51 that we are looking at. David is describing what's acceptable worship. What's acceptable worship? And students, think about this for a second. You've all sinned. Every one of, every one of us have sinned. And when we respond to our sin, there's, 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 there's a lot of false ways. There's a lot of wrong ways we could respond to our sin. And one of them would be to think that we need to make up for our sin. You do something wrong, right? Sometimes you might might have sinned against a friend and you're thinking, "Ooh, I shouldn't have treated him that way. What do I do? Oh, I'll make it up to him. I'll be nicer. (laughs) You treat somebody a certain way and you're thinking, okay, I need to make this right. I think there might be some hostility there so I can win him over. Or you do something you know it's notably against God and you're like, man, I just sinned against God. What do I do? Oh, I need to do something and show the Lord that... that I'm really devoted to him, and I need to make it up to him. And I'm going to do something really big, really grandiose, and just make it up to the Lord. And that's not a right way to respond to our sin. There's nothing that we can do. If we have sinned against a holy God, what could we do to wipe the slate clean? What could I possibly offer God where he would say, oh, my righteousness demands that I punish you, and your sin, your guilt must be dealt with because I'm a righteous judge, but man, now I see how amazing of a person you are and let me just forget about all that. What could I possibly do? I mean, we're talking about sin before a holy God who's omniscient. He sees all. He knows all. So in that illustration I gave you about the shirt with the food all over it, it's like, even if I change shirts, God's omniscient. He knows that that shirt, the one with the stains, is hidden in the closet. I mean, I can, I can hide it from people. If I spilled food all over my shirt at breakfast and I changed shirts, you might not know that I got a shirt hiding in my cabin, covered in food because I was a mess. I got salsa all over it. But look at my shirt now, guys. Aren't you impressed? I mean, I could can, I can fool you, but when it comes to our sin, no one fools God. I remember talking to a, a dad one time who was, he was talking about um, taking his son on a walk. I mean, not like a, not like a walk, like go around the block, like a walk across the United States. And uh, I was talking to him about this and I said, you're, you're going to leave with your son and you're going to be gone for how long? He's like, it's going to be about a f- five months. I think they mapped it out. It's going to be five months. And the idea of the walk was uh, his son, his son had uh, diabetes. And so they were going to do this walk to raise funds and support to fight diabetes. And so they said, well, yeah, we're just going to try to raise funds, and, and uh, we're just going to start walking, and we've got a little bit saved up, so we're going to start in Miami, and we're going to walk all the way to L.A., and so we've got enough to make it all the way to, you know, um, Daytona Beach, and if, if, if we don't, money doesn't start coming in by then, then we'll have to, we'll have to stop, but we're going to try to make it all the way across America, and just raise funds for diabetes, and I'm like, I said, well, what about, what about all the commands of the Lord? Like, don't, don't forsake the assembly together. Like, why, why wouldn't you want to be part of the people of God? Why don't you want to be equipped? Like, why would you do this that takes you away from obedience to about a dozen passages. And he said, oh, pastor, we're doing this for the Lord. Oh. So here's what God told you he wants from you. And you said, no, we got something better. Here's the trophy I'm going to hand you. Namely, I walked across America for you, Lord. I mean, it sounds totally different than purgatory. It's the same theology. It's the exact same theology. David is going to help us this morning. Let's direct our attention back to Psalm 51 because David tells us what acceptable worship looks like. He continues in this posture. He's on his knees. He is broken. He is before the Lord. He is desperate. He's dependent. He's not about to offer up to God some big trophy. He's not going to polish up some work and say, look, Lord, look what I did for you. He is actually coming to the Lord begging that God would enable him to offer a sacrifice that would be worthy. Look at what happens here. Let's start in verse 14. First of all, he says, Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Deliver me from blood guiltiness. Think about this. Think about David's scenario here. Let's just go back historically, put ourselves back in in David's sandals for a little bit. David has just killed one of the most highly decorated soldiers in his military, Uriah. He killed him. He told his general, leave your eye on the front lines, back away from him so that he can get killed and I can marry his wife because we sinned. Wow. He, is, he has guilt all over his hands and all over his soul. And he knows it, so he comes to the Lord and says, Lord, deliver me from blood guiltiness. He knows that that stain, you know the stain of the shirt illustration, he knows that that's a legit stain on his soul. He's got stain on his soul. He cannot remove that stain. The only person who can deal with a stain on my soul or your soul is God. And he's crying out to God, the God of my salvation. This requires a God who can save, who would be able to deliver me from guilt. With guilt on my soul, I have an enemy, namely God. So I have to go to God to beg to be delivered from God. God deliver me from guilt and deliver me from you as judge and so he says "O oh God the God of my salvation is God a, is God a God who can forgive yeah is God a God who can blot out iniquity yeah is God a God who can ignore sin? No. Not at all. You, you realize when David says, deliver me from blood guiltiness, he's not saying, would you please ignore what just happened? He knows God's righteous. Let me, show, let me take a quick pause in Psalm 51 here for a second, and let me show you something that we need to be, have clear in our minds. Everybody turn back to Exodus 34. Exodus 34 Okay, so we are, we are just after... Remember the story of the golden calf? The nation built this golden calf and they're, they're trying to ascribe credit to this golden calf. This, this, this is God who saved us. And, and they're, not, they're not saying that this is a different God. They're, I think they're trying to say this, is, this image represents the God who delivered us. So it's an absolute abomination because they're equating that image with the actual God uh, who delivered them. It's just grotesque. So God's ready to wipe out the nation. Um, Moses pleads with the Lord and of course God would not have wiped out the nation because he's faithful to his promises and he promised to get them to the promised land but Moses is pleading with God and he's he's pleading with him and so let's go back actually go back real quick to um, 33 verse uh, um Oh, there it is, verse 18. Verse 18. Moses says to God, I pray you, show me your glory. Okay, Moses, he wants to know God. He's concerned about, he's concerned about his, the nation because they're rebellious against God. He wants to know more about God's character. He's just impressed that God would even have relented and not wiped out the nation. And he's just like, God, show me your glory. I, I need to know you more. Verse 19, he said, God says to him, I will make myself, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. So he's just talking about this divine prerogative. He has the right to be gracious to whomever he wants, and he has the right to show compassion to whomever he wants. That's in, that's in God's right. That's in his authority. That's in his prerogative. He can do whatever he wants. But he says to Moses in verse 20, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. It's like Moses says, show me your glory. I want to see all your glory. And he says, well, if I showed you all my glory, you would no, no human could survive that ordeal. So I'll do better than that. Let me pass my goodness in front of you and conceal you from my face and I'll do better. I will declare my name to you you know, sometimes I, I like reading this passage and reminding myself, I used to imagine how cool it would be just to have an experience of God's glory. Like it just, how cool would that be if God just showed up in my bedroom, you know? And the glory just, was just white hot and it's just instant combustion. All the drywall went up in flames and there's just the Shekinah glory. It's like, I picture my hair like just getting singed. I don't know, I don't know what I pictured. I thought, man, that'd be great. That'd be so cool. No, that would be fatal. That would be fatal. And God says, you know what's better than seeing my glory? Is the proclamation of my name. In word, for me to reveal my character to you, that's even more glorious than you seeing my glory. Because I want to communicate my glory to you in a way that doesn't consume you, so that you can actually know who I am. The verbal articulation of God's glory is better than a Shekinah experience. It's better. And so that's what God promises Moses. Verse 21, the Lord says, Behold, there's a place by me, you shall stand there in the rock, and it will come about while my glory is passing by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I've passed by. Then I'll take my hand away, you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. So then he just gives him some instructions on making some tablets, like the former ones. He's going to rewrite the, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. And then he cuts, him, cuts the, uh, the, the tablets in v- chapter 34, verse 4. Now I'll skip down to verse 5. Chapter 34, verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed. So here it is. Better than a Shekinah experience better than a visible manifestation of God's glory, is the verbal proclamation of his character. And here's what he says. This is better than seeing God's glory, is hearing this description of his character. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. I mean, you think about that. That's the beginning of it. That's where it starts. I mean, you just had an entire nation that you delivered by your mighty hand, you give ten ten plagues on the nation of Egypt to bring the nation of Israel out, you bring them through the Red Sea, you wipe out the entire world's greatest military force known to man at that time, you wipe them out in the Red Sea, you deliver your people, you show them your glory on the top of Mount Sinai, and then they sit there and say, cool, let's build a calf and worship it. And... What I, if, I were writing Psalm, uh, sorry, if I were writing Exodus 34 verse 6 I would have written the Lord the Lord God full of righteous indignation wrath and hatred it's going to wipe all you out you punks what were you thinking and the first revelation of his character is I'm Yahweh the one who will fulfill the promise I'm compassionate I'm gracious slow to anger that's staggering. That's a staggering, staggering, kind, patient, benevolent God. Let's keep reading. Verse 7 who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives, there it is, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Iniquity is a twisting of God's ideal. It's a perversion. Transgression is crossing a line that he has said don't cross or stopping short of a line that he says that you must get across. Sin, sin is missing the mark. Missing the mark of what God has called us to. He forgives that, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. And I think there's a way... I think that's, you know, you can see if you're I'm reading the NAS, um, the New American Standard Translation. I don't know, I don't know what most of you are reading. But here, here's the phrase: he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Um, in, in the Hebrew, it would probably even be more literal to say, he will by no means leave guilt unpunished. He will by means by no means leave guilt unpunished. Does God forgive? Yes. Does he ever leave guilt unpunished? No. God has never, he never has, he never will, in time in past, in time future, there has never been a point in time where God would ever have let guilt go unpunished. There is not a single stain committed by any human soul that will ever go unpunished. God sees all and He knows all. He is that omniscient and He's that righteous and He's a judge and He's forgiving and He's kind and He's compassionate. Isn't that just strike you as almost contradictory? Which is it, Lord? Do you forgive sin, iniquity and transgression? Or do you never let guilt go unpunished? Yes. Both are absolutely true. Both are absolutely true. Let me show you how. Let me show you a couple passages so that you can appreciate what David is doing for us in Psalm 51. Let's just go to Isaiah and then Hebrews. So start in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter uh, 1. Isaiah chapter 1. Hopefully these are fairly fairly straightforward, very simple explanations of that help us understand David's expression in Psalm 51, verse 14. Isaiah, chapter 1, verses 16 to 18. Isaiah is writing to the nation, and the nation has been, they've been unfaithful. And um, he's been, he just got through telling them that he's tired of the nation coming to the temple. It would be like, if I, if I modernized Isaiah, it would be like somebody saying, why do you keep wearing me out, coming to your church? You come in, you come out every Sunday morning, every Sunday night. And you just come to the church. You trample at my church with your feet. But you don't worship me in your hearts. That's kind of the idea of what we just skipped in the first half of Isaiah 1. So we're going to dive into verse 16. God says this, and it's kind of like tongue-in-cheek. You can, say it, you can hear it through the words of Isaiah. You can hear God almost kind of tongue-in-cheek saying, well, okay, go ahead. Just make it right. Look at verse 16. Wash yourselves. All right, so you got stain. Just take care of it. Already, do something about it. Make yourselves clean. You got stain? You got blood guiltiness? Okay. Just take care of it. How do we do that, Lord? Well, just here's all you need to do. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Oh, it's that easy. <laughs> to hide that stain of that shirt hiding in my cabin from the eyes of the omniscient God. It's that easy. And never get salsa on your shirt for the rest of your life. It's that easy. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. That's actually what we need to be doing. And that's obviously entirely beyond us. So, verse 18 God steps back down and says, okay, so let's talk about that. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, then, you will, then they will be like wool. God says, let, let, let's talk about this. And he offers them forgiveness. And he's recognizing, look, you've got sins like scarlet, you, you are red like crimson. I realize that, and I'm recognizing that you don't have the ability to wipe out your blood guiltiness. So let me take care of it. Let's reason together. And if you can come to me, and you can call to me, then I'll make you white as snow. How does God do that? Let's go to Hebrews chapter 9. So one more passage here, and then we'll get back to Psalm 51. Psalm 51. Hebrews chapter 9 is a helpful, helpful description of the distinction between what's effectively accomplished by the Old Testament sacrificial system, which was an anticipation of the, the promise given to the Jews that God would provide a seed and a king who would wipe out sin and reverse the curse. And those who offered that sacrifice in faith were trusting in that seed promise. But the sacrifice of the Old Testament system, devoid of faith, was as good as purgatory. It was as good as giving the Lord a trophy of walking across the United States on your bare feet. Accomplished nothing. See, if if I've sinned against God, my conscience tells me, you know you did wrong. And when we're talking about cleansing your blood guiltiness, how could we possibly cleanse our conscience? How can our conscience say, yeah, you actually did commit blood guiltiness and it actually has been removed. This is the only safe way to do it. In verses 1 through 9, one through 10 he's summarizing as it says in verse 1 the first covenant. It had regulations of divine worship it had an earthly sanctuary he goes on to describe the earthly sanctuary from verses 2 through 5 and he describes all that was going on in that earthly sanctuary that represented his presence among the people of God his presence on earth. Then in verses 6-10, through ten, he describes the regulations of divine worship. What does it mean to actually worship in that fashion? And what those worshippers would have to do regarding sacrifice and regarding Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and a high priest bringing a sacrifice into the Holy of Holies for himself, coming back out and bringing another sacrifice for the nation and so that the sins of the nation could be atoned for one more year. But it didn't suffice because it had to happen the following year, and it didn't suffice because it had to happen the following year, and it didn't suffice because the next year and the next year... Contrast, verse 11. But, but when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation. Okay, time out. Why did he say that? You might not know this. What's so profound about the tabernacle is when Moses built it, he was given like blueprints. You know, have you ever seen blueprints from a building You know, that have like, Like the layout of every every level, and there's there's like you can see the plumbing, you can see the electrical fittings, you can see where everything goes, you can see the dimensions of the walls, and then the engineer has foundations and footings all drawn up. So you got the you just turn pages and you got all that laid out on the on the little blueprints. It's like God gave Moses blueprints of the tabernacle, and these the, the blueprints came straight from heaven. It's like God says, "Here's where I dwell, in the heavens." So now the tabernacle is patterned after the place where God dwells in the heavens. So what was built on earth is kind of like a shadow. It's kind of like if you shine a big cosmic flashlight on God's dwelling and just put that image down on earth, there's the tabernacle. So everything about the tabernacle was to reflect something about the actual presence of God. And so he built that as a pattern. It was patterned after it. And Christ is different. Christ did not die in the tabernacle, which had become the temple at that point. He died outside of the temple. He died outside Jerusalem. He shed blood and offered an atonement in the original tabernacle, the one where God actually dwells. How profound is that? Here's Almighty God, omniscient, who sees all the stains on the shirt in all the closets that I've ever tried to hide, and Jesus Christ takes blood to come and cover my stains, not in a tabernacle on earth, in the tabernacle in heaven, before God's very eyes. Verse 12, not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Eternal redemption, once for all. There is no more re sacrifice. There's no more mass. There's no more, but there's no purgatory. There never was a purgatory. The death of Christ was once for all, and it obtained eternal redemption. Verse 13. Because after all, if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, which is true, it sanctified for the cleansing of the flesh so that the people could go into the temple and worship. How much more then, verse 14, will the blood of Christ, who through the Holy Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, how much more will the blood of Christ cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The only way, students, you can serve God as a sinner, the only way you can offer up acceptable worship is through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's what David's describing here. Go back to Psalm 51, verse 14. David says it simply not God let me offer up victory on the battlefield God let me offer up an incredible temple and the furnishings that my son will build God let me offer up hopefully some national peace for Israel God let me offer up this trophy that I polished for you what's his worship God would you deliver me You ever thought about that? What's the greatest thing you can do for God? Beg. What can you offer God that he doesn't have? Nothing. How do you, how do you, what do you you give to God who has everything? He possesses all glory. What would we possibly do for him? Let's just start with begging. God, would you deliver me? You know, you know, I know one way that I can help your glory. I'll bring the guilt. I'll bring the crimes. I'll bring the liability. You can deliver me. And you can showcase how glorious of a God that you are, that you would save a sinner like me and deliver me from guilt as bad as mine. That's the only way we can glorify God. I mean, just think about it. What could you possibly give to God? What would you have? What would you bring? What would you offer? David just says, hey, you know, can you, can you help? Verse 14b, now we're going to pick up the pace here. Verse 14b, then what will happen is my tongue will sing joyfully of your righteousness. When God delivers and delivers righteously, not unrighteously, God will never let guilt go unpunished. He is going to punish that guilt and it's either on the sinner or on Jesus Christ. That's the only two ways that guilt is ever paid for. That's the only two ways that the, the guilt is, is, is punished. Is on the sinner who committed the crime or on Christ in the place of the sinner. That's, the, that's it. That's it. And so here he says, if I get delivered in that fashion, I will sing of your righteousness that you wiped out my guilt in a righteous way. Wow. What a righteous God. He atoned for my sin and he wiped out my blood guiltiness. The fact that a sinner who has offended God, like me, like you, could ever offer acceptable worship to God should should never cease to amaze us. That's acceptable worship. Brokenness coming to him, begging in humility. Verse 15, he continues to plead with the Lord O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. Now there, here he's just sitting there saying, I, I want to be able to worship you rightly, but I don't have that ability, so I'm actually going to keep begging. I'm going to keep begging and say, Lord, wouldn't you enable my worship to be something acceptable to you? Now, you know, you might have heard when I prayed at the beginning of the of the study this, this morning, you know, we all, we all sing. But I, I do want to just ask, and I don't mean this, students, I, I don't mean this in some sort of like heavy-handed way, just trying to like just bring some sort of false sense of conviction, but I do want you to ask the question, honestly, before the Lord. Okay, so I sang. Did I worship? Was my singing acceptable? You know, I remember a student coming to me, um, a girl in my high school ministry about a decade ago, and she had a beautiful voice, an amazing voice. I mean, she was, she tried out for some one of those singing shows. I don't remember which one it was, but she tried out for one of those shows. I mean, she just had a really, like a high caliber voice. She sang in the uh, choir and she would often sing from up front. And um, she, she and her mom came to my house one day because um, her life had kind of been exposed. She was living a hypocritical life. And she said to me, she said, Pastor John, can I keep singing from up front? I said, why, why would that be helpful? She's like, well, I really enjoy it. And I said, yeah, but you've got to understand, singing in the, in the church has nothing to do with whether we like it, has nothing to do with the quality of our voice. Singing in the church has to do with pleasing the Lord, worshiping Him. And if we like it, singing in the church more than we like obeying Him. Our singing in the church is not worship. And she was like, oh. And she's, to this day, not walking with the Lord. And I just thought, man, we can kid ourselves at times. We can kid ourselves and think that we were doing this stuff. Like, I went to camp, I went to church, I sang. David's David knows he can't do any of those things that would please. Acceptable worship, he's like, that's beyond me, Lord. So I'm going to come to you. Lord, wouldn't you open my lips? Wouldn't you allow me to actually offer a worship to you that would be pleasing in your sight? Because I I can't bring that. Can't you help me do that? I know you can. The Lord loves to produce worship through us that he actually finds pleasing. Verse 16. Verse 16. Why would David pray what he prays in verse 15? Well, verse 16 says, because. That's what that four means there. Because. <laughs> why, why would David pray, open my lips so that I could declare your praise? Because you don't delight in sacrifice. Otherwise, I would give it. In other words, if the answer was something that I could do, I would do it. Could David offer sacrifice? You better believe it. He had so many cattle. He had so many sheep. He had so many goats. He's the king of Israel. I mean, if God said 10,000 sheep, 20,000 bulls, He'd be like, absolutely, done. If that's what God wanted, David says, I would have done it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. Now, that, that phrase might strike you as funny, because if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that God demands burnt offering. That's a, that's a command. And so David's sitting here saying, you don't, you're not pleased with burnt offering. So is he saying, God? You know, the, the, the offerings, there's something wrong with the offerings? Absolutely not. Just look quickly down at verse 19. He's talking about when this happens in the nation, that it's going to happen, that God will delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offering and whole burnt offering, and then young bulls will be offered on your altar. So there's nothing wrong with the sacrifices as God demanded. What's the problem is, in verse 16, he's saying that what God delights in is not the fact that I, in my own self-worship and self-reliance, would offer a sacrifice. What God wants is my heart. He wants my brokenness. So David's sitting there saying, man, if only God could just give me a number, 20,000 sheep, I'll do it. 40,000 sheep, I'll do it. Whatever it takes to make this right, I want to do it. And he says, but that's not what you're after, Lord. That's not what you're after. You know, there's about four Psalms. I won't won't show them to you, but if you want to read, I'll just give you these references. You can write these down. These are fascinating. I'm going to give you some references about Where the psalmist says that God doesn't delight in sacrifice. And when you look at these passages, it's actually pretty interesting. Uh, First one is Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. The second one is Psalm 50, verses 7 through 15. The next one is Psalm 69, verses 30 and 31. And those, together with Psalm 51, that's, that's four psalms that describe God not delighting in sacrifice, burnt offering. That's not what God wants. That's not what he's after. What is he after? In Psalm 40, he's after the substitutionary sacrifice of a future David who would be given a human body who would yield up his entire body as obedient to the Father. It's a messianic psalm written by David about the one who is the subject of the Torah and it's the seed who's going to take on a human body. And that's that's what God's after. Not some sacrifice without faith in that sacrifice. In Psalm 50, the issue is the nation is actually thinking, oh, I'm going to bring to the Lord these sacrifices. And God just says, really? You're going to give me a sacrifice? Don't I own the cattle on a thousand hills? Which is obviously (laughs) an idiom. No, God doesn't only own the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns all the cattle, and he could create more if he wanted to. (laughs) He doesn't need the cattle. He's not impressed. He doesn't need that. There's nothing we can offer him that he's lacking. In fact, in Psalm 50, there's a phrase that says, you thought I was just like you. And I'll just say this, students. When you see people start to worship God by responding to their sin and bringing something that they think he would be impressed with, What they've done is they've made God in their own image, every single time. We start to make God in our own image, and we start to respond to God the way we think we would want to be responded to if we were God. With all of our fallenness, we impose that on God, and we think that God would be impressed with our cute little trophy that we offer to him. Let me polish it real quick. There you go. Uh, I created that. Why do I want that back? You've got your filthy fingerprints all over it. Oh, I guess I just recreated you in my image, thought you'd be impressed. It's just over and over and over again, the psalmist keeps saying, look, it's not the sacrifice that's the issue. It's the heart. If God doesn't want our diabetes walk, if he doesn't want our clean shirt, if he doesn't want our thousand sheep and thousand cattle on a thousand hills, if God doesn't want our beautiful voice in front of the church if God doesn't want our strict, severe treatment of our bodies, if He doesn't want our man-made rules to look like we're really religious, if He doesn't want our suffering to atone for our sin, what does He want? Verse 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Students, if you're like me and you start to realize who you are before the Lord, it's kind of uh, kind of just like reticent to say, I don't even know what I could give. Now, I remember, like I told you about last night in my conversion, I remember back in the dorms in Chicago, I remember thinking, like, Lord, I'd love to have something to give, but I don't have anything to give. And I remember reading Psalm 116. This is how you'll glorify me. Raise up the cup of salvation. I realized that's all I have to offer the Lord is how glorious he is because of how kind he's been toward me. I'll just call out to him and raise up the cup of salvation and say, Look, God saved me. What a great God. What can I bring? Well, nothing really. But I'm glad to tell that he did everything. I'm glad to boast in him. David says, look, here's the only sacrifice we can bring. You want to know the one sacrifice you can bring? The one thing he'll never turn away? The one thing that will never turn his stomach? The one thing that's not disgusting to him? I mean, all of our religious pretense is totally disgusting to him. He hates it. If we, if I preach, and I have no regard for obedience, and I don't want to honor the Lord in my heart, and I don't care about pleasing the Lord in the privacy of my own conscience, but I'm glad to preach at camp. Or we like to sing, because we've got a good voice, and oh, I love to sing, but then obedience and the, to my parents, I don't know, but that's not so attractive. He's disgusted by all those things, but what he'll never turn away is right here in verse 17. A broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. I mean, broken means I'm undone. Like, oh, that's I just, I just sinned against God. I committed crimes against God. A contrite heart is one that's low. Contrite means I have no more regard for myself anymore. Wait, if I bring that, that means I have to admit to the Lord that I... I've done nothing good. There's really nothing I can brag about myself? There's nothing I can boast in? Yep. And that's the sacrifice that he loves. He loves a broken and contrite heart. In fact, look again at the last phrase. A broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. Students, you might be a world-class sinner, but if you bring the sacrifice of a broken and contrite heart, God will never never, ever turn you away. If he turned you away with a broken and contrite heart, he's a liar, and he is not a liar, my friends. I don't care what you've done. If you come to him with a broken and contrite heart, he will not turn you away. He will not despise you. He'll accept your sacrifice. David concludes, explaining, by your favor, do good to Zion. Zion is the future city where Christ will dwell and rule from, and geographically, it's just a hill just south of the Temple Mount, Um, but in scripture, quite often, it's, it's actually used eschatologically, like the, in what's going to happen in the end times, and that's what he's talking about here. By your favor, do good to Zion, build the walls of Jerusalem, and then, the idea being, I believe, in that day, you will delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offering and whole burnt offering, then young bulls will be offered on your altar. He's anticipating a day where, in, from Zion, Christ is reigning, and then the sacrifice, sacrificial system will actually be pleasing to him because it will be conducted by people with hearts that are broken and contrite. How sweet is that? That's what David wants. That's what he's praying for. That's what he's looking for. Students, I want to just make a couple comments here before we break up for small groups. There's a couple, uh, and I've already, I've already gone down this road a little bit last night. I want, to, I want to just go back here real quick so that you can have, this is a talking point that might be helpful for you, and you don't have to talk about it. I'm just, I'm just suggesting this. I have found this helpful. As I've, as I've looked at my own heart, I mean, pretty much any of my pastoral ministry that's ever been useful is because I'm trying to shepherd my own heart. But as a pastor trying to help others, as a, as a Christian trying to honor the Lord in my own heart, I've noticed two very typical but very dangerous tendencies when, when it comes to how we respond to our sin. Let me give them to you. Number one is the superficial response. Superficial. A superficial response to sin... Now, I've seen people, you know, they're, they're casual in their glib, in their confession, and their, their response to their sin, lacks conviction. It's, it's almost like somebody who has been living decades, as I, just, as I just literally three weeks ago had this conversation with a man who had, had been arrested because of a, a lifestyle that he had been concealing for 20 years of deception, covering it up. And he's, he's sitting there and he's telling me, "Yeah, I've repented. It's over. It's good, my friend." We're talking about twenty years of cover-up, twenty years of lying, twenty years of sinning against your wife, multiple crimes you just hadn't been caught in until now. It's over like that, like oh yeah, I repented. Cool. Okay, it's good. Glad that's over. Twenty years, and you snapped your fingers and it's over. Hmm. I think we've got a lot of heart work to do because there's some blood guiltiness that we haven't even begun to touch. That's that's always a problem. Don't be superficial. That's like the uh, salvation that's only full of joy without any conviction. That's, that's, that's not going to help you. You need, the convi- you need as much conviction as David describes here in 51. The second dangerous tendency when it comes to how we respond to our sin would be Morose. I was trying to come up with a better word. Morose was my word. I don't know, I don't know if that's a word that you guys use. M-O-R-O-S-E. So if that doesn't work, if that, that's probably not a common word. Uh, so here's my picture. Remember Winnie the Pooh? Eeyore? Eeyore had this, his, t- his, his tail pinned on, you know, and he's just always like, oh, he's always whining. I'm, such, I'm so worthless. Oh. So there's like a, a morose response to sin. This is the person who's just like, oh, I've sinned. Okay, let's talk about it. Are you going to leave it with the Lord? I guess. Have you been forgiven? I think so. (laughs) Then where's the joy? (laughs) I mean, your response to your sin should have as much conviction as Psalm 51, and it should have as much joy as Psalm 51. The morose person is the person like I described to you, that guy named Joe, who was, uh, um, who, who was sitting there, and, and his morose response to sin was because of a guilty conscience that he had smeared over, and he thought that this was guilt when it wasn't, and this actually was guilt, and he was totally oblivious. And so he's just superficial and glib, but when he was under this false conviction, he's just morose. Oh, I just I, know, I figured I'd be happy later. I think we... Um We should be suspect of our response to sin if it ever lacks conviction and if it ever lacks joy. If our response to sin is biblical, it'll have both. There's no greater joy than seeing God bring proper conviction for the crime of my sin where I would actually embrace all of the consequences of my sin knowing that that's for my good because I trust Him and that I'm thrilled that He would actually have covered it so that the omniscient gaze It's not that he no longer looks at the sin in the closet. He's the only one who could have actually eradicated the the stain in the closet. He eradicates it. It's not that he's not looking at it anymore. He actually takes care of it on the shoulders of his son, Jesus Christ. That's always going to be accompanied with conviction and joy. (sighs) Guys, um... Hopefully that's helpful. I've, been, I've enjoyed Psalm 51 with you. I've been preaching to myself as I've been preaching to you. Um, tonight, planning on trying to do all of Psalm 32, which might be quite an accomplishment, but we'll, we'll see how, how we do. So tonight we'll look at Psalm 32, but hopefully this has been helpful for you. Let me just close in a word of prayer, and then we will break for small group. Lord, thank you for Psalm 51. Um, Lord, this has just been such a, an encouragement for us to think about um, what it means to... Point the finger at ourselves and to make sure that as we point our fingers, we we would really need to see some Godward sorrow and desire for inward purity. And then as we turn and think about what it looks like to plea and to beg and to look to you, um, I pray that our our pleas and our our desperation would be in the direction of, of an acceptable worship and a recognition of our spiritual dependence on you. Lord, we need you for everything. I pray, Lord, that uh, you would be pleased with our broken and contrite heart. We come to you um, pleading that we would be able to, that you would really open our lips so that when we speak, we would speak truth to one another in love. That when we speak, we speak in a way that would always glorify you. That when we speak, we would sing your praises, that we would edify one another. Lord, to worship you like this is, is, is beyond our ability. Our prayer is that you would deliver us from blood guiltiness, so that our our obedience could be useful. Lord, what you what you you don't you don't need anything from us. You don't need popularity. You don't need skill. You don't need um, um, brilliance. You you don't need social ability. um, You don't need money. You, You you have you give and you create and you make all these things. They're already yours. What you want to use is our brokenness. What you want to use is our contrition, our lowliness, our, our lack of regard for ourself. Lord, if some of the students here are, are thinking about this stanza, and maybe they're realizing, wow, I think I have a pretty high view of what I could bring by way of worship. I just pray that what they regard um, highly about themselves, I pray that they might be able to repent. And wherever there was high regard for self, that, that would be replaced, not just with a despising of self, but also, as they despise themselves for their sins, that it would be replaced with an esteem for what, who you are. Wherever we've thought about what, who we are or our reputation, may we always and only think about who you are and your reputation. So help us, deliver us, and thank you for the promise that you'll always accept a broken and contrite heart. In your name we pray. Amen.